Will you please turn in your Bibles to the book of James? We'll be looking at James chapter 4, but we're going to just look at a few verses initially in chapter 1. So James chapter 1, if you need a Bible, the guys have some, get their attention as they make their way down the aisle. They'll get a Bible to you so you can follow along as we look at James 4. Every year at the beginning of the year, I offer a message centered around three resolutions that we want to, as a church, commit to. Last week I did that, and I urged our congregation to, in 2013, resolve to do three things, to read God's Word, and to heed God's Word, and to spread God's Word as well. This past Monday morning, I sent an email to all who are on our email list that linked to a devotional for the entire year, and that devotional includes a Bible reading plan. If you would like for us to email a copy of that to you, then uh, during our break after this service, go to the information center by the windows to my right and uh, give the ladies there your name and email address. Let them know that you would like that sent to you and would be happy to do that. For those that want a printed copy. We have some at the Resource Center. They cost us $5 to copy and to bind, so they cost you $5 as well. So you can have the PDF that I send to you, or you can purchase one of those, but I encourage you to uh, make use of that. As together, 2013, we read, heed, and spread God's Word. And so that's the way I normally begin the year. Three suggested resolutions And then throughout the year, we'll remind you of them from time to time. Now, for me, the theme of the resolutions changes from year to year. But I know a a pastor who starts every year preaching on the same topic. He does so because he believes that topic is so vitally important to the health of any church. This man has planted and pastored several churches, And he has had some practice, uh, had the same practice at each of those, having this same sermon at the beginning of each year. And so this brother begins every year with a message on the evils and destructive nature of unbiblical communication. He starts every year with a sermon on how we communicate. In fact, he even requires anybody who's going to join the church to listen to that sermon. That's how important he deems this to be. Now, why does he do that? Well, I've never asked him why he does that. I only know him from a conference at which he spoke, and we've talked on the phone a time or two and emailed. So I'd have to speculate as to why he has this unusual practice. It may be that he's just paranoid. And so he wants to put everyone in fear so he doesn't have to worry about what anybody's saying. Or he may have experienced in his many years in ministry some very difficult circumstances and he wants to take preventive action. Or it's entirely possible that he may have simply read the Scriptures and noticed how very often the Bible talks about talk. And therefore, he's seeking to give the subject the importance that's attached to it in Scripture. Now today, we're back to our series in the book of James after a couple of weeks off. 
We had a Christmas message and then last week's New Year's message. And the topic of the passage we're going to consider is, yet again, communication. Now I say, yet again, because in the only three and a half chapters that we've covered so far in the book of James, we've seen this theme several times, and I want to remind you of those places where we've seen that briefly before we look at today's today's passage. Back in chapter 1 and verse 18, we're told that we were given life by God through the word of truth. And then in verse 19 of chapter 1, it says that as a result of that, we should be people who are ready, who are eager to listen to that word. And therefore, verse 19 says, should be slow to speak. So back then when we looked at those verses in chapter 1, that was back in July, we said that each of us would be wise to limit our exposure to those and only those who have earned the right to speak to us, those that we can trust. And God's Word is eminently reliable. And therefore, we should always be ready and eager to listen to God's Word, but we ought to be very careful about others to whom we listen. The guy yelling at you through the radio is not necessarily worthy of your hearing. Or the lighter, louder volume that the TV commercials always have doesn't mean that they've earned an audience with you. Or the pop-up on your screen or the movie that's being marketed in the previews before the movie that you're going to watch or the billboard on the side of the bus or the truck or the t-shirt. None of those deserve your attention simply because they're there. And we said then that we have to be selective in our choices of who can speak and command our attention. I recommended that you limit your exposure to those that you can trust, those who have earned the right to speak. When the Bible says that we should be slow to speak, chapter 1 and verse 19, it's not referring to the rate of our speaking pattern, but it's telling us we should be very careful about talking or writing or tweeting, or Facebooking. When we do, we should do it only in love and in truth. Chapter 1, verses 22 through 25 are all about listening to the Word, but then doing what the Word says. Verse 22 of chapter 1, do not merely listen to the Word, do what it says. And to avoid the danger of then having people who say, okay, I will mechanically obey the things that the Bible says for me to do so that we only engage in a merely external ritualistic obedience, doing our religious duty, as it were. At the end of chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, we're told that a truly religious person will be three things. Will be compassionate in relation to others. It'll be somebody with a heart to care for those in need. Widows and orphans are singled out. A truly religious, spiritual person will be one who is desires to be clean in relation to the world, to pursue a holy life. It says, keep yourself from being polluted by the world. But then it also says, a truly spiritual person will be careful in relation to communication. Verse 26 says, if anyone considers himself religious, does not keep a tight rein on his tongue, he deceives himself and his religion is worthless. 
And so we are told about speaking in chapter 1 and verse 19. And then chapter 1 and verse 26. And then chapters 2 through 5, the rest of the book of James, are all about explaining the three things given in verses 26 and 27 of chapter 1. Being compassionate in relation to others, clean with regard to the world, and careful in our communication. And so the importance of communication is highlighted again, and it's the exclusive topic of chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. And then following on those 12 verses, chapter 3, verse 13, all the way through chapter 4 and verse 3, continue the same subject by showing us the source and the consequences of both godly communication and ungodly communication. One results, we're told in chapter 3, in a harvest of righteousness, the other in disorder and every evil practice. And the take-home truth that I had for you for those messages on communication was simply this. The key to holiness is control of communication. The key to holiness is control of communication. It's not an overstatement for me to have said it's the key. Because as we noted at that time, the way we use our mouths affords almost limitless opportunities to sin. I mean, think about sinning in the way we communicate. You don't need to be in any special place. The opportunity is always there, and we find ourselves very often taking advantage of that opportunity. And that's why chapter 3 and verse 2 says, if anyone is never at fault in what he says, he's a perfect man, able to keep his whole body in check. And so since... The sin of communication can take place in nearly any circumstance. Hear this. Self-control of the way we communicate prepares us for nearly any circumstance. And so one preacher has said it this way. The tongue, because it is the instant expression of the heart, it can sin more readily and more often than any other member of the body just because of circumstances. You can't get in a position to sin in every way with your body. You're always in a position to sin with your tongue. Because the tongue can sin so easily, because it's such a monitor of our sinfulness. If you can control the tongue, the greater sinner in your body, then by virtue of controlling the greater, you gain control of the lesser. The person who controls the tongue will also control the body with all its other impulses. Since the tongue responds more immediately and more quickly and more easily to sin, if it were controlled, the slower responding parts would also be controlled because the means of divine grace applied to the greater are then also applied to the lesser. And so why does this brother start every year talking about communication? In all likelihood, it's because he's attuned to the fact that God speaks of this over and over and over again. And he's indeed trying to give it the importance that Scripture grants to it. And so now, yet again, we're confronted with warnings against ungodly communication. Now, friends, just pause for a moment. If the Word of God spends this much time on a particular matter, then is it not obvious that it's a matter of great importance for us? 
one that we each have to evaluate in our lives, and one with which each of us must be open and willing to deal. The Bible says things like this in Proverbs chapter 6. There are six things the Lord hates, seven that are detestable to Him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked schemes, feet that are quick to rush into evil, a false witness who pours out lies, and a man who stirs up dissension among brothers. That seems like a weird way to say that. And if you've read through the book of Proverbs, you know you'll see that kind of thing a number of times. You know, there are three things the Lord hates. Yea, four are an abomination to Him. And so you'll have these, you know, three and then four, or in this case, six and then seven. And that is a, a way in Hebrew poetry to emphasize one particular thing. All of the things in that list of seven are, of course, important. But it's written this way in order to emphasize the seventh. And so it's saying all of these things are detestable, but this is an abomination to the Lord that one would stir up dissension among brothers. You see how very seriously the Lord takes this. And the means by which we stir up that dissension that God hates, it's an abomination to Him, is in the way we communicate. Now we're going to look at two verses in chapter 4 of James. I just want each of us to focus our minds upon the need to evaluate our own communication with our lips, in our writing, with all the means of electronic communication that we have today. Notice what chapter 4, verses 11 and 12 say. Brothers, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against his brother or judges him speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you are not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbor? Let's ask the Lord to help us as we consider this most important topic. Father, we thank you that you are indeed the God who guides us by your word. You are the God who has spoken and you've given us the ability to receive that communication, but you've also given us the ability, ability to communicate. And you have given us that ability to communicate your truth in your love. But because of our sin, we have so perverted all of your gifts, including this marvelous gift. And so we thank you for your correction in your word. And I pray that every person here would put aside every distraction and that each of us, including myself, will focus ourselves upon what you say about how we communicate so that we can honor you with this gift. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. 
Now, when verse 11 says, brothers, do not slander one another. And then it says, anyone who speaks against his brother. Slander and speaks against are the same word in Greek. So some versions say, anyone who speaks against, do not speak against one another. Anyone who speaks against his brother. And the NIV could have done that as well. They are indeed the same word. And it's a word that means to talk down. To talk down. And it includes a whole range of communications. Obviously, it would include willful, false accusations against another. But it also includes exaggerations of faults that another person has. Very real faults, but we use our communication ability to exaggerate those in order for them to look bad, to talk them down. Or it would include needlessly repeating the very real faults of someone else. Again, in order for them to look bad, to talk them down. And so when it says speak against or slander, it means to talk down. And there are a variety of ways in which that can happen. What is said in a slanderous way may indeed be true, but if it's designed to harm, make the other individual look bad, belittle them or their position or their opinion, then it violates the command to not speak against or to speak down about, or as we sometimes say, running them down. I heard a story of two men, a captain and a mate, who worked on a large ocean-going vessel. And one day the mate, who normally did not drink, became intoxicated. The captain hated this guy. And so the captain entered in the daily log, mate drunk today. Now the captain knew that this was the mate's first offense, but he wanted to get him fired. The mate begged him to change the record, but the captain simply said, it's a fact, it's true, and into the log it goes. A few days later, it was the mate who was keeping his log. And he concluded it with, Captain, sober today. Realizing the implications of that, the captain asked that it be removed, to which the mate replied, it's a fact, and in the log it stays. You see that what we say may be true. But if it's designed to make someone else look bad, to talk him or her down, then we are guilty of the speaking against or the slander that James prohibits. And so we've given you an outline that was inserted in your program. I encourage you to take a look at that. And there we say, when we speak ill of fellow Christians, and I'll say why I'm talking about fellow Christians and focusing on fellow Christians in just a bit. But when we speak ill of fellow Christians, we fail to see a number of things. And I have those outlined for you. The first one is we fail to see believers as brothers. When we speak ill of fellow Christians, we are failing to see believers as brothers. Now I say that because in verse 11... Brothers, do not slander one another. If anyone speaks against his, notice the word again, brother. And then the NIV says, or judges him. And literally, it doesn't say him. It says his brother. 
And so three times in verse 11, James has said, brothers do not slander if anyone speaks against his brother or judges his brother. Do you see that James is going out of his way to emphasize that when we talk, when we communicate about one another, the people about whom we are communicating are our brothers and our sisters. James is clearly emphasizing the spiritual relationship that we have with one another and how that ought to affect the way we communicate about one another. He's reminding us of who we are in our relationship to each other. And that should call to mind how we got into that relationship. Do you remember? That God in His grace has reached out to us in Jesus. Giving us new birth through the word of truth, chapter 1 and verse 18, so that we are now born into His family and we are now His children. And so it means that we are all on the same level. We are all the children of God. And so it's improper for one to claim or to exercise superiority over another brother or sister. Jesus, the Bible tells us, is the firstborn among many brothers. And when it uses that phrase firstborn, it is he is the preeminent one among many brothers. He's the preeminent one in this family, not any of us. We are simply co-equal family members. And that's why a month ago, earlier in chapter 3, as we considered verses 1 through 3 at that time, I suggested that we each make a rule for ourselves. That we will only mention the name of another to another person, a third party, for the good of that individual. And I will only speak to another person directly for their good. If I engage in criticism, it should always be followed with a suggestion. And I should be very liberal in my praise for others. That's why the Gettys are right when in their song, Beneath the Cross of Jesus, they said, Beneath the cross of Jesus, His family is my own. Once strangers chasing selfish dreams, now one through grace alone. How could I now dishonor the ones that you have loved? Beneath the cross of Jesus, see the children called by God. You see, friends, when we speak against, when we talk down, of whatever variety, in whatever form, we are failing to see other believers as they indeed are, brothers and sisters in Christ. And we are also, secondly, failing to see them as neighbors in the biblical sense. Not that they live next to you or across the street from you necessarily, but as I say, neighbors in the biblical sense. Now, you all remember that Jesus gave his famous illustration of neighborliness and who is my neighbor in his parable, his story of the Good Samaritan. And in his definition of neighborliness, it leaves no room for talking down, but only for coming down to where the need is. Identifying with the need and abandoning self-interest in order to meet the need. 
Each person that God brings into my sphere of influence, your sphere of influence, has now become a neighbor to me. And his or her needs now become a responsibility for me to gauge and to act upon as God allows me to do so. And my fellow Christian brother or sister is my neighbor in a very special sense, par excellence. And so if I know something that he or she has done wrong, I will not seek to spread that. Love covers a multitude of sins. I will not seek an audience to make sure that I can cast aspersions upon him or her. I must be a Samaritan to him or her. He or she is my neighbor. And friends, remember this, always remember this, that when we defame someone else in our communication, it always begins in our mind. It's always something that we say to ourselves before we ever say it to someone else. And so you're going to win or lose this battle in the recesses of your own thinking in your mind, as am I. And so what are you rehearsing in your mind regularly about other people? And that in turn is going to be what you find yourself saying about other people. When we engage in slander, speaking ill of fellow Christians, we fail to see them, those believers, as brothers and as neighbors. And there's a second thing that we fail to see clearly, and that's God's law. I have that in your outline. We fail to see God's law clearly. Verse 11 says this, Anyone who speaks against his brother or judges him speaks against the law and judges it. Now notice, speaks against or slanders the law. So when we do this, we are failing to see God's law as a couple of things. The first one is we fail to see it as binding. You see, because God's law has said don't do that. So when I do that, guess what I'm communicating? Well, that doesn't apply to me. That applies to mere mortals. <laughs> that applies to other people. It's not binding on me. I can flout God's law. Has God's law said not to do this? Well, of course, James has told us very directly not to do it. But the law to which James refers in the first part of your Bible indeed says so. Leviticus chapter 19, do not go about spreading slander among your people. Love your neighbor as yourself. In James chapter 2 and verse 8, James refers to the royal law. And he, call, and he quotes Leviticus 19. The royal law is to love your neighbor. And so what happens when instead of speaking in love, I slander, I talk down? Well, one, I'm clearly breaking the law. The law says to love, but I respond with slander. But secondly, James tells us in verse 11, I judge the law. That is, by flouting the law, I am in effect communicating, I know better than God does. God says don't do this, but I can go ahead and do it. And no matter, friends, no matter how sophisticated we are in the way we do this, and we are really slick in the way we do it, aren't we? I mean, my goodness. In church, we can do it with prayer requests. 
you know, pray for so-and-so, he got drunk again. Or maybe it's not that flagrant, but we're going to slip it in there. You know, pray for me, I'm still struggling in my marriage. Well, we all know who you're married to. And, and we all know it's not your fault. So we can be in a community group. We can be in the hallway. We can be in the nursery. We can be in a deacon's meeting. I can be with a bunch of pastors. Believe me, pastors, including this one, are not immune from this. We're very slick in the way we do it. And when we do it, we are saying that God's law is not really binding on me. I know better. We're also saying something else about God's law. That it's really not good. It's not binding. And it's not good. We judge the law. We know better. So we fail to see it as good. In effect, we're saying the law is mistaken. The law should not have commanded me to use my mouth to love and to build up, to edify others. It should have told me to criticize. Had I written the law, that's what I would have said. The law does not. Whatever God purports about His law does not express the highest and best values. And we then take on a new position according to the end of verse 11. When you judge the law, you're not keeping it. You're sitting in judgment on it. We have usurped the authority of God Himself. Now in one verse... Has James roundly condemned in very certain terms, friends, the way we communicate so often? And doesn't that apply to you? And doesn't that apply to me? Oh God, help us. Oh Lord God, help us to change and to use your gift of communication for the purpose for which you gave it. When we speak ill of fellow Christians, we are failing to see believers as brothers and sisters and as neighbors. We're failing to see God's law as binding and as good. We're failing to see a third thing. And that is we're failing to see God as He truly is. Namely, glorious. Verse 12 says, There is only one lawgiver and judge. And when we disobey what God has said about how we communicate, we're failing to see God as glorious. Now let me explain. If you've been with us, you know that the word glory in the Bible means the display of God's character. Psalm 19.1, the heavens declare the glory of God. They, they show us something about the character of God, His beauty and His power and His majesty. Romans 3.23 says all have sinned and they fall short of the glory of God. That is the character of God, failing to think and talk and act like God. And so God's glory is the display of His character. And God's law was designed in order for us to follow it. Now hear this, God gave us His law in order for us to obey it, follow it, and thereby reflect His character back to Him. God's law is a reflection of His character. And when we 
flout God's law then? When we say, I don't have to follow this. When we say, I'm saved, I'm going to heaven. I prayed a prayer when I was three. I'm the biggest gossip in town. But nevertheless, Jesus loves me. This I know. When we do that, we are failing to reflect God's character by failing to obey the law that was designed to do that very thing. Exodus 20. When God gave the law, He starts this way. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of slavery and then begins to give the Ten Commandments. He reminds those to whom He gave the law of who He is. I'm the Lord your God. This is what I'm like. And now I am giving you these laws that reflect what I am like. When we speak ill, then, of other Christians, using our communication ability for other than the purpose for which God gave it, we are failing to see God, then, as glorious. We're saying, friends, hear this, we are saying that His character is not worthy of emulation. I'm, I just speak my mind. That's just the way I am. Well, guess what? The way you are and the way I am ain't good enough. That's a news bulletin. And the way you are and the way I am is supposed to be changing day by day and week by week and month by month and year by year. And it will not do for any of us to simply say, that's just the way I am. We fail to see God as glorious. We also fail to see God as supreme. I mean, who's in charge here after all? (laughs) Who's running this ship? Who makes the laws around here? And if I think I can flout God's law and I can just talk even in Christian ways and even in Christian coffee clutches or whatever we do, and wherever we do it, and no matter how subtle we are with it, we are saying that I am really supreme, not God. We value our opinions above that of God. We, in effect, elbow God off His throne. You remember a moment ago I had on the screen Leviticus 19? Do not slander your neighbor, love your neighbor as yourself. Here's that full passage. Do not go about spreading slander among your people. Love your neighbor as yourself. And then it says, I am the Lord. You see, I can give this command. Because I am the Lord. And you're not. I am supreme. And you are not. When we disobey, when we run our mouths, when we slander and speak against and talk down, we are saying, in effect, God is not supreme. That raises the question, where is the humility that James told us we must have in chapter 4 and verse 6? God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. In verse 10, humble yourselves before the Lord, and He will lift you up. So when we speak ill 
of fellow Christians. We're failing to see believers the way we should. God's law the way we should. God Himself the way we should. And fourthly, we're failing to see ourselves as we are. Verse 12, but you, who are you to judge your neighbor? And I say we're failing to see ourselves as we truly are. <clears throat> Do you all remember a few weeks ago when we were looking at, yet again, one of these passages in the book of James about the way we communicate? I said that this communication always takes place in the context of our relationships with, with each other and that we can relate to each other in one of three ways. We can compare ourselves. We can contrast. Or we can consider. We can compare. That is, how are they better than me? We can contrast, how am I better than them? Or what we should do is consider how I can serve God by serving them. And I said then that the first two of those, when I compare, how are they better than me? Or contrast, how am I better than them? Those are egocentric. They're focused on, on me, on the, on the needs of the individual, myself. And we take that approach in our relationships if, if we're in some kind of competition. And that's why very often slander or speaking evil is associated in Scripture with jealousy. So Paul wrote to the church at Corinth. And he said, when I come, I fear there may be quarreling, jealousy, and outbursts of anger, factions, slander, gossip, arrogance, disorder. Peter wrote, rid yourselves of envy and slander of every kind. You see, friends, how I deal with others is affected by how I see myself. And when I speak ill of other Christians, I fail to see myself as, and I have two blanks for you there, I fail to see myself as undeserving. Undeserving. You know, I'm talking down, right? So that I am elevated. I've got no right to talk down if I understand the grace of God, of course, and how truly undeserving I am. But my objective in talking down is to elevate myself. I'm failing to see myself as the undeserving recipient of God's grace that I am. One commentator explains verse 12 where it says, He is the one who is able to save and destroy. You see that one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. He says, God who could justly have condemned and destroy, chose rather to save. And it's on this ground of undeserved mercy that both critic and criticized stand together as brethren of the same Father. Neither has the superiority which makes talking down possible. Each is bound to the other in family love. Paul said it this way. By the grace of God, I am what I am. And if we see ourselves as the undeserving recipients of God's grace, we do not have room for talking down. When we do that, we fail to see ourselves, yes, as undeserving, but lastly as dependent. Dependent. 
You see, if I do this comparing and contrasting and I find that there are things that I can do better than somebody else, I'm more accomplished at, they're messing something up, I wish we had somebody else in their position serving in their ministry. So in a Christian sort of way, I'm just going to keep criticizing them. It may be true. It may be true that they're not doing a good job. It may be true that they're in a position that they are not best equipped for. And for their sake and for ministry's sake, you want to see that changed. But hear this. Even when we are better at something than someone else, we are always dependent on God for those gifts and abilities. If we remember that, we won't find ourselves using our then supposed superiority and competency to criticize and talk down others. The Bible asks, who makes you different than anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive? And the answer is, Nothing. Every ability you have, every gift you have was given to you. You're dependent on God. And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? Well, we're going to conclude. But I want us to think together a bit as we do. Think about how we communicate. Think about the ways God has given us to communicate. Of course, with our mouths. Of course, with the pen. But now through email. Now through Twitter, now through, now through Facebook. What kind of communication do you invite into your circle? Whether in the physical presence of others, whether at church or outside, whether at your keyboard, whether on your Facebook page, hear this. <laughs> you know, pastors, uh, uh, Facebook, yikes. Okay, just yikes. I mean, it just reveals more than I care to know about what's going on in the hearts of people. But dear friends, what are you saying on Facebook? What are you spending your time pursuing? I mean, inordinate amounts of time pursuing stuff that from an eternal perspective ultimately does not matter. And you're allowing other people to make comments. Even if you don't make them, you're allowing other people to make them and go unchallenged. You see, in order for the person slandering, talking down, to be successful, uh, to be successful, they have to have an audience, don't they? If no audience, no effect. We have our building project going on. I find myself over there multiple times during the week. Different contractors running around. There's one guy there who's uh, one of the many painters that have been, there's been a zillion painters in and out of there. One of the painters has been there for the last couple of weeks, and at least four times this guy has tried to get me aside to move a conversation down a talk-down, slanderous route. He wants to talk about the general contractor. He wants to talk about the other painters and what a bad job they did. All of that. And whenever he does that, I say something to redirect the conversation. Now, I hate it when pastors are the heroes of their own stories all the time. So I did that to this guy. Doesn't mean I always do it. I sin too. But that's what I should do. And that's what you should do. Hear this. 
Our children are affected by what they hear us communicate in the car. Do you get that, Mom? Do you get that, Dad? You cannot talk about brothers and sisters in the presence of your children without that having effect on them. Churches are affected by the attitude that people seek to export to others. And so ask yourself, as I ask myself, whether we are going to be a thermometer or a thermostat in our relationship with others. A thermometer merely reflects the temperature that's around it. The environment that it's in. A thermostat changes the environment. So are you simply going to display the environment around you or will you seek to change it for the better? I heard a story about someone who chose to be a thermostat instead of a just a thermometer. Jenny was a very godly girl. And there were no sins that she considered light in her life. When others of us would gossip, Jenny would either try to present the other side of the situation in a positive light, or else she would remain out of the conversation, giving us the unquestionable impression that she did not want to have a part in gossip. The first couple of times I gossiped around her, I would think, we'd better not have this conversation around Jenny. She wouldn't approve. But her godly response to our sinful behavior actually began to purify my thoughts. It wasn't long before I began thinking, we ought not to have this conversation. We're sinning when we talk about others this way. Jenny's testimony made a huge impact on my life. I don't think she ever sat me down and confronted me about my tongue. But she was different, and her difference challenged me to use God's word and not other people as my gauge for right and wrong. I don't want to condone sin in my life. I want to be used as a thermostat to change even my Christian environments for the better. I have a take-home truth for you in your outline. Negative talk about others reveals what we think about them, about God, about His law, and about ourselves. Let's ask God to help us in the way we use His gift. Our Father, we thank You for your the grace of conviction. The grace of conviction. It is a grace that You extend to Your people that you chase our hearts that are prone to wander. And that wandering is seen in so many ways. But your word tells us over and over and over again that it's seen not just in the things that we associate as the so-called big sins. It is seen most often in the sins that reveal the heart most readily that come out of our mouths and through our keyboards in our expressions. Thank you for convicting us for lovingly doing so. I pray, Lord God, that your word will have its good effect on my heart and upon the hearts of your people for the betterment of our families and for this church of family of families. To your glory we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.